0: Welcome to Cut the Bull, an insightful podcast which addresses the news of the day and the cultural issues plaguing our society, bringing logic and context to these topics and discussing solutions too real for mainstream pundits. Now, here are your hosts, Charles Love and Wilfred Riley.
1: Hello and welcome to Cut the Bull. I am Charles Love alongside my co-host, Wilfred Riley. Our guests this week are Aryeh Tepper, he is the Director of Publications at the American Sephardi Federation and the co-host of Straight Ahead, the Omni-American Podcast, and friend of the show, third-time guest, David Bernstein, founder (laughs) of the Jewish Institute of Liberal Values and author of uh, the very prescient book, Woke Anti-Semitism. Gentlemen, welcome to the show.
2: Great to be here. Thank you very much. Yeah, great to be here. Thank you for the invitation.
1: Well, I I mentioned to you, I let you know that, you know, this is such a large issue that we've already had an episode about it. We kind of took one take there. This is kind of a continuation to talk about more, you know, in-depth conversations about the region and things of that nature. But I think I need to start with your experiences over what's nearly the last three weeks. I know that... um, Everyone has a unique and difficult take on it. And Aryeh, you had firsthand experience. You talk about your son and things there with the terrorist attack. So let's start there. Let's talk a bit about, you know, what life has been like for the last few weeks.
2: Right. Well, you have to make a a clear distinction between October 7th and what followed, of course. Uh, I I live in the southern town of Ofakim, which is uh, 25 minutes from the Gaza Strip driving, uh, you know, 55 miles an hour, and uh, uh, my neighborhood was overrun with terrorists on October 7th, outside my window. Um, my son, my 20-year-old son, uh, grabbed his weapon and fought the terrorists here in Ofakim and in Kibbutz Re'im, which is where the rave party was, uh, and since then, we've all been digesting how much there is to digest, uh, and uh, um, Beginning to understand the enormity of, of the event, uh, seeing the reaction around the region and around the world, um, everyone has been to a funeral, everyone you know has, has been to a funeral, but you're, you're mourning and you are staying focused uh, uh, at the same time. Um, occasionally there are um, uh, air raid signals and you have to descend into to the uh, shelter in your home or in your building or in your neighborhood. Um, and that's life right now, and we're waiting for the the ground incursion to begin, and there too, you know, you have, uh, um, uh, you know, your friends and your family who have, you know, sons and daughters, uh, mostly sons, uh, waiting to go in.
1: Right, and uh, David, what about you? What has it been like for
3: you? Yeah, well, it's a little different. It wasn't in my neighborhood. Uh, I had downloaded an app called red alert when I was in Israel, just a few months earlier, because there was some rocket fire at that time and it would give you an alarm every time there was a rocket. So it would go off a few times a day or, you know, probably 20, 30 times during that week. And we all had it and I forgot it was on my phone. And then Friday night, my phone was going haywire. Mm -hmm. And, um, I couldn't believe, like, what's going on here? And then I looked at the map and you could see I saw more rockets coming than I'd ever seen before. And I was trying desperately to find out what's happening, but there was no news. Finally, I had to disable the app to go to sleep. And then I woke up the next morning to this, you know, dystopian reality. And since then, of course, it's also been for me about what's happening on the American scene, seeing before the blood had even dried on the pavement, seeing Organizations that we had been following um, just justify Hamas' murderous campaign um you know, people with the hand glider tote bags that mm-hmm. uh, that praised these terrorists coming on hand gliders who murdered the people in um that rave at that music show. um and so um we've been trying to make sense of it all, and it's been challenging because You know, Brett Stevens, the New York Times columnist, used the term uh, on Sunday, October 8th Jews, Jews who have woken up to the reality Mm. of October 7th and its implications. So I was an October 8th Jew years ago. (laughs) Uh, Right. I wrote the book about woke anti-Semitism, how progressive ideology harms Jews. And now I'm trying to ask ourselves and myself. What do we do to raise consciousness among our fellow Jews and in the larger society? And how do we isolate some of those people with a hand glider tote bags? What do mm. we do about them, too? Wow.
1: I, I want to say something briefly, uh, and <clears> because, <throat> you know, these conversations just kind of flow based on what you said. And I thought about something you said, because you were on the show talking about the book. And I remember asking you a question, because David and I, for those who know, agree on a lot of things. And we get into these fierce fights on that one small percent we disagree on. Right. And so I challenged him on something in the book about right wing and left wing anti-Semitism. And I agree they both exist. You go far enough away, they're the same races. But I do say in a lot of ways, I kind of felt that I kind of compared it to racism from the Black experience. And so there's races on the left and right, obviously. But I find that the races on the right are more likely to say Blacks are inferior. I don't want to live around them. I'm going to sell my house and move away from you and don't marry my daughter, right? And the ones on the left tend to be more harmful because they kind of like one of my black pro-black liberal friends even agreed. He said that they kind of, you know place themselves in the center. So they'll say Blacks are inferior and they need our help. So we're going to come and come into your schools and we're going to teach you, right? We're going to run for office in your area and be your politicians so we can lead you out of what we think you're in. So in some ways, what they do is is worse. And, And I kind of felt the same thing. Now, obviously on the far, far right, but if you talk about just inside the farthest left and right, you still have people on the left, like what we're experiencing. And then on the right, they're kind of like, it's more verbal right i had the same thing uh yes
3: exactly. we were talking
1: to um heather uh will about uh this, 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 these so anti races that i interviewed and they're both have they, they both have a japanese parent so they wrote this book about the fears in the asian community and so i asked them about the attacks and what do you think when you see these black people on video punching these asian people and they they got this weird you know, conflated their anti I mean, their uh, anti-racism with their liberalism, and they said, "Well, how do we know it's really black? The, the the data says it's white people who are doing it." And then I said, "I said, but what about the video? How do we know people aren't selecting those videos?" And so I said, "Well, do you think that maybe the difference is that you get a larger percentage of whites who are anti uh, who are anti-Asian, but they're saying, saying, go back to your country,' and the other ones?" Are punching you in the face. So it may be a larger number of those, but the more immediate threat is the guy who's more likely to punch you in the face. And it's probably not the white guy who's telling you to go back to your country.
3: Yeah, yeah. so Jonathan Greenblatt of the ADL, who uh, is somewhat <laughs> a controversial figure, but you know doesn't mean he's not right about a few things, compares mm-hmm. anti-Semitism on the right to a hurricane and anti-Semitism on the left to climate change. Now, I used to think that was an apt analogy until I saw the tsunami that came on the left in the past <laughs> ten days. But okay, let's just go with the analogy for a second. Um, you know, we talk about the ideological roots of anti-Semitism on the right, mm-hmm. but We don't talk about the ideological CO2 emissions that produce the anti-Semitism on the left. And I'm about talking about it at this point. I don't know how you not talk about it at this point, because you can't fight something if you don't understand where it is coming from. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, you think you know, this 31 student groups at Harvard signing that statement came from nowhere? Right. Do you think that these horrible protests from, you know, the, the, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, came from nowhere? I mean, they had to come from somewhere. It wasn't mm-hmm. like that 20 years ago, or even 10 years ago, right. or certainly 30 years ago. So something has changed. What is it that's changed? What is the ideological environment that produces what we saw at Harvard or Wisconsin or university of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And, and I'm trying to get my fellow Jews to utter the words. They don't have to say the W word. If they don't want, that's fine. We'll come up with something else, but you got to utter the words. And they're getting closer. We I want to hear your thoughts. But The closer.
1: last thing I'll say <laughs> about green blast uh, um, Kind of analogy. The other thing you could say is the hurricane is very powerful, but it hits one area, right? One side of Florida and not the other side. Whereas climate change, given their argument, is everywhere. It's global. So even in his analogy, the other one's worse.
3: (laughs) Right, right. Mm
0: -hmm. Will. So yeah, just I mean, there are a couple things there. First of all, I think violence against Asians is actually a pretty good analogy because often when you have successful quote unquote middleman minorities, you get a lot of bullshit from all sides of the spectrum. So I actually, like after some of those conversations, I was curious enough to pull up my crime data and look. And I mean, violence against Asians, it was like 28% black, 27% white, like 25% Hispanic and native was only like 18% Asian. So, I mean, in fact, they, the the Asian Americans were correct. Like there are racist whites that target Asians. There are black bugs that target Asians, so on down the line. Mm-hmm. The situation with Jews seems a bit similar, but I, I guess one of my comments would be, Objectively, a lot of stuff on the American and British far left seems a lot worse and a lot more pronounced than a lot of stuff on the American and British far right. I don't know about the entire world. But I mean, like during the, you know, the summer of uh St. George Floyd, like we saw it's, it so whole cities weren't burning, but like urban blocks set on fire. I mean, a police station was burned down after like a medieval battle between protesters and cops. I mean, dozens were hospitalized. This went on and on for months. I mean, in Kenosha, you had the left and the right fighting in the streets with guns. That was a Kyle Rittenhouse case. Um, I mean, right now, I've been I've been honestly watching using social media, Twitter and YouTube and so on. These, quote unquote, pro-Palestinian protests. I mean, there have been at least three, including the big one in Sydney, where people are actually chanting gas the Jews, Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. kill the Yahood. They're people holding burning banners in the sky. I mean, there there's no situation like that in public from, from the U.S.-U.K. right. I mean, a major portion of the campaign against Trump during an election was focused on one rally that happened in 2017 in Charlottesville. 30, where there the 30
1: were 30 attendees or something.
0: Yeah, I mean, to be fair, so one person was killed. I mean, there, there were 50 people killed during the BLM riots. I mean, I'm sure there are going to be injuries or deaths during these pro-Palestine protests. So. I guess the question for Dave and Arya would be almost, do you think people will pick up anything from this? I mean, mm-hmm. it's obvious that you can it, you can either say, well, they're both sides here. Or you can say, well, the left is worse. But the people that are just sort of nodding along and you're now seeing a lot of a lot of my upper middle class Jewish friends are now starting to critique the Israeli response. Mm-hmm. It seems like it's very hard to get people out of this existing life way, which is You know, the threat is these bad, rubish people out there, and we're the good people, and our allies from the gay community to the Arab business community, they're the good people, too. Are people going to change that frame when you hear gas the Jews enough? You're on mute, Dave. I think you're on mute,
3: Dave. This is one hell of a wake up call. call. I'll tell you that much. So you had you had Rabbi Sharon Brous, who is a progressive firebrand rabbi, give a sermon. I'm just going to read two lines from it. okay? it went viral. She was on CNN this morning to justify barbarity in the service of decolonization and the liberation of Palestine requires more than an ideological commitment to Palestinian freedom. It demands mental and emotional contortions that render a person fundamentally unable to see the humanity in a Jew. It requires a deep-seated association with Jews and power, the Jew as oppressor, the Jew as victimizer. Now, is she willing to go one step further like I would be and say, it's not just that they're seeing the Jew as, as, as the oppressor, the Jew as victimizer, but they bought into an ideology that links identity to privileged. And so therefore it becomes inevitable that they'll see the Jew as the victimizer, the Jew as oppressor. So I'm trying to get them to take that conceptual leap. I'm not sure that they will or that they have. Um, but I'm we're making the argument that they need to now. And um and and, and if people like Sharon Browse are saying what she said, then what about all the moderate Jews that thought about it, maybe would read my book or read an article and say to their friend, you know, maybe he has a point, um, who might now be persuaded to come out. And i gotten a lot of messages. Um, one of my favorite ones was from a former colleague who uh, I hadn't seen in a long time because I think she was not so happy with the direction I've taken. Right. And she heads up a major Jewish human service organization. And she said to me, it was my birthday a couple of days ago, and she said to me, my birthday gift to you is to say you were right I'm seeing woke anti-Semitism everywhere and it's exhausting. So anyway, I do think that there's a potential breakthrough, but there's a lot of work that needs to be done.
1: Well, Arya, to you, this might be a perfect uh, kind of setup to what you wanted to talk about. So, I mean, you can answer his question about will it make a change, but it also goes into you have a, a really interesting idea about an opportunity that Israel has to kind of shift the the balance on the, the uh, war being waged by Islamists
2: right so thank you charles um uh, first happy birthday david <laughs> yes <laughs> um and also uh y'all might be interested in talking about um paternalistic uh uh racism well i don't know what was the term that y'all using not paternalistic but also uh but paternalistic racism uh greg my co-host on the mm. on the uh, uh, uh straight ahead Podcast. We have a conversation coming up with Winton Marsalis, Mm -hmm. and and he and Greg and Winton devote time in that conversation to this kind of hidden paternalistic uh, racism. Mm -hmm. Um, But um, going back to what David said at the start, and and his book is an important book, and we see it now. And I wholly agree with his um, assertion that we need to know that this behavior that we're seeing among the woke has intellectual roots. We need to understand in the Middle East that, that we are dealing with a definable enemy right now in fighting Hamas, which are is the Islamists. Mm-hmm. Um, before I think I share the idea, maybe we can talk just for a couple of minutes about the Islamists, because I'm not sure people understand that they exist as a coherent entity and that they, they've they declared war on the West and on, Isra- on, on the entire world. Mm-hmm. Uh, for around a century now, um, Hamas is a. So if, maybe I should just give a one-minute introduction, a two-minute introduction to Islamism and how the how the present. Okay, yep. Hamas is a, 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 an Islamist organization. Which Islamism is a view that grew out uh, 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 out of the Muslim Brotherhood in the first half of the 20th century. The Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, um, is an islam an organization, uh, educational, Islamic organization in Egypt. I'm not going to get too deeply into the weeds. I'm sure if someone wants to be pedantic, there are other sources in India. I'll do But writ large, the Muslim Brotherhood gave birth to thinkers and then a plethora of schools that they have an interpretation of Islam um, that is uh, fundamentally uh, murderous. Mm -hmm. Now, but but before we just criticize them as being murderous, and I think all good people who watched what happened on October 7th understands that Hamas needs to be eliminated. Um, But we need to understand from the inside, what is the thought process that leads people to behave in this way? Same thing as Dave said with the woke. Mm -hmm. And, And Islamism is an interpretation of Islam that understands that there's an obligation to demonstrate God's sovereignty on earth, not just in the heavens, but on earth. And um, we are living in a generation in which the ignorance regarding God is unprecedented and life only has value if it is ruled by God. And if it's not ruled by God, then you're just leaving yourself to the whim of human devices and oppression Um, and uh, the obligation to institute God's rule on earth leads to the feeling that it is preferable to die than to live in this uh, unrectified situation. If you have a choice between living in barbarism according to their lights, which is any non-Islamic society, uh, it's preferable to die And so from there, you get, you know, the famous what I think, uh, you know, a few days after the October 7th attacks, there was a a prominent Hamas Hamas member on Russian television saying, we love death and more, you know, more than the Israelis love life. We know they love life. In fact, the entire Palestinian society society is ready for death, he said in the name of the Palestinians. Um, And the West, whether it likes it or knows it or not, is at war with the Islamists. It's been at war for a long time, and they feel that the future belongs to them. Um, and so this battle right now with Hamas really is only a battle in one larger war, which is the war with the Islamists. And it's a battle which must be won, and it must be won in a def- definitive manner. Now, I think that aside from the uh, military and diplomatic aspects of defeating Hamas. And if you like, we can discuss those. Mm -hmm. But there's also the war of ideas. Mm -hmm. And we haven't related to the Islamists on the level of the war of ideas. And I'll share this in a bit. But we have a rare opportunity, I think, right now to uh, actually uh, say something important, as strange as it might sound, on the level of of the war of ideas and actually uh, uh, win an important battle there.
1: Yeah, I think that we can tie that in
2: along with, you know, when we get to
1: the part about, so what do we do and what happens at the end? But, you know, in the middle, again, kind of want people to understand the illiberalism and the illogic of the way things are being framed. Um, And speaking of what you said
2: about the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, uh, Arafat came out of that school of thought, right, and physically from Egypt, right? Arafat was from Egypt. I don't know his relationship to the Muslim Brotherhood per se. Mm -hmm. Um, I do know that he had extensive relations and worked together quite deeply with uh, any number of Islamists throughout his career. Right. And the Palestinian National Movement, from its origin, the the father of the Palestinian National Movement is uh, Haj Amin al-Husseini from the 19th. He was openly uh, and he was was allied with the Muslim Brotherhood, openly meeting with Adolf Hitler and uh, allying with him in the 1930s and 40s. Right. So, David, what I want to do really briefly for about 10 minutes here is just kind of
1: set this up. Uh, You're there. David goes off. And and I think it's important for people to understand. Because it's the marches we're seeing, you know, um, it's it's the the pro-Palestinian apartheid occupation. You got what you deserve because you're white, you know, You know, oppressor, and we need to decolonize. So, we kind of need to address that a bit, right? And so, I want to kind of discuss discuss the reason, the differences between the groups and how they're managed between the West Bank, Gaza, and the rest of Israel, because we're constantly hearing one of the constant things we're hearing is apartheid. And uh, I I won't try to say that the conditions in Gaza are great. Of course, they're not. And there's some geopolitical issues, and Israel isn't perfect. But at the same time, In order for, it seems weird to me, and I want your thoughts on this, and and you two can kind of do a brief explanation of how things happen. Uh, We'll get to, you know, as far back, we won't go all the way back to B.C., but at least most recent history. But it seems weird to me that they're claiming apartheid and they're comparing it to South Africa, right? Ethnic, the way blacks were treated and the, the legal status. But if that were the case... Would there be a situation where there are two million Muslims living with equal full citizenship in, in Israel if there was an apartheid state? So talk a bit about that argument and the differences between Gaza and the West Bank. David, you're on mute again, David. What are you doing while I'm talking? Are you baking? You're cooking? Or something?
3: Now, I got a dog who's tapping on the door <laughs> right. and trying to get in on okay. this conversation and I'm trying to keep him out. Um, Okay, so let me give it a shot and maybe R.A. will uh, fill in some of the blanks.
1: Um,
3: So there look, there's basically at (laughs) least there's there's four or five categories of Palestinians in some ways. But uh, but let's talk about three. Number one, there are Israeli Arabs. These are Palestinian Arabs who live in Israel and have full democratic rights. Doesn't mean that they've never faced any discrimination in their history. (laughs) It just means that uh, legally they have all the rights that a Jewish Israeli has right um then there are palestinians who live in the west bank who could live in different parts of the west bank um and uh, they're under occupation um mm-hmm. a military occupation yeah and then you have palestinians who live in the gaza strip and uh they have they were the israelis left in 2005 from gaza now we could talk a lot about what happened in gaza this idea that it's an open air prison is just absurd Absolutely absurd, but we could talk about that. But what what people try to do is say that because there are Palestinians that are still living in occupation, that means that Israel is an apartheid state. Now, apartheid was a system in South Africa that treated black people fundamentally different than white people, gave them a whole series of different rights. It wasn't in occupation. Now, okay, so Israel shouldn't be occupying, right? Well, okay, Israel tried to end that occupation on numerous (laughs) occasions, offered, um, you know, a two-state solution first in Camp David, then again in um, Utaba, and then again in 2008 to no avail. Um, And there's good reason to believe, especially since what we just saw in Gaza, that it wouldn't go well. I mean, I hate to say I want there to be a two-state solution because I don't want like the country i love so much israel to be occupying another people but as uh, my friend david makovsky said from the washington institute the israelis saw the read the book in gaza they don't want to see the movie in the west bank right. and and so i think it's very hard to argue right now that that israel should leave that territory and potentially abandon it to hamas Right. Because that's easily what could happen. So I don't buy this apartheid thing. Does that mean that Israel should do everything it can to get out of the lives of Palestinians without risking its own security? Yes. Does that mean that um, that Israel has easy options to do that and to fundamentally change the situation? I don't think it does.
0: Uh, I can jump in for one minute there uh, as a political scientist. Didn't Israel try to give the West Bank and the Gaza Strip to some of the stable Arab powers yeah, of several Jordan, times? Wasn't it? That- yeah the, yeah, the West the Bank. 1980s. There was a proposed deal with Jordan. Yeah, and I think yeah. this went on until the the mid 90s actually, where the Arabs and this is I mean, obviously you guys know much more about the situation in Israel than I do. My focus would be modern American and Chinese politics or something like that. But I mean, just my understanding is there have been multiple deals of this kind. I mean, and the Arab powers don't seem to want anything to do with the Palestinians. I mean, so this this came up the, during this conflict where Egypt was asked to open the border with the Gaza Strip, right, and let refugees through. And they said, hell no, the sort way. of. We don't want the radicalized population of Palestine and Israel.
1: The King I mean, so of Jordan was, said it's a red line. I'm, I am think yeah, I can speak for Egypt. Red line. Yeah, say for not one of those yahoos can come into either one of these countries.
0: I mean, they've said in the past things like, we don't want the slums of Israel and Palestine dumped into our countries. I mean, they've been very blunt in the way that non-Westerners often are. I mean, Jordan still has a king. You know, They're an Amun. So, yeah, they've, that was just my comment, that they've been asked if they would take these these lands off of Israel's hands almost right. and manage them with their own quite quality armies by this point, and they've said, hell no.
1: All right, to that point, if we go back to the Six Days War, in '67 weren't the area we could talk i mean we can get i mean we can talk for days about the conflict how it started but in very practical general terms at the time of that war weren't the areas already i won't say occupied well, but controlled
2: yeah, by I mean, they're, they're,
1: egypt yeah. jordan syria right so it's not mm-hmm. like before the war and israel won that war so before that war uh these areas were all a hundred percent you know separate nation of Palestine and then right. Israel came and do it I mean it was partially Egypt controlled by different areas so that's what a lot of the free Palestine people are missing correct
2: I don't know they're I don't know if they're missing it or if they're just um uh... <laughs> no to be fair I think they're pretty stupid so a lot of them these Look, a lot of kids, yeah, let's just it. think yeah the college kids are missing everything so <laughs> where, where where do you want to start um just I mean the, the whole thing is built on uh, fundamentally a lie. Right. Hamas, that, and then everything follows that. If you want to, you know, you just try to destroy Israel in different ways. It doesn't work. You try to find different ways to delegitimize the state, and that's what's been going on. That's what continues to go on. Right. Hamas itself acknowledges. They say in the seventh article of the Hamas charter that they trace their origins to 1939. 1939 and the, uh, the the resistance in 1939. 1939 is nine years before there's a single refugee in and uh, uh, you know uh, nineteen thirty nine it's twenty eight years before there were any <laughs> occupied territories. Right. so when um when people talk about seventy five years of occupation, they're talking about the existence of the of the state of Israel. there are various forms of dishonesty and. Mm-hmm. And stories and narratives that are told, which have the say so you, you understand them when you st- understand the end, and the end is to de-legitim- delegitimize Israel. And you have a lot of useful idiots to that end. I think this that goes back to again Thar- to understand. I'm and David. I'm sure can tell us a lot about this. You know, the woke has uh, uh, subterranean connections to. Russian disinformation and you know Stalinist ideas. So it's all.
1: And they control the language, so we, that, that's the problem we have. That's what ties into David's thing and my thing with race crazy and and Will's constant
3: talk about the left. What they're saying. Is right, can because- I add one element to that? Yes, go ahead. Because mm-hmm. I think it's really important. My friend Isabella Tabarovsky, who you should have on, mm-hmm. uh, cut the Bull. um She's she's from the former Soviet Union. She lives in Israel. She's written about how a lot of this started in the late 1960s out of Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. After Israel won the Six-Day War, the Soviets were beside themselves, and they wanted to discredit Zionism as an idea. And so they created a whole field called Zionology, which was meant to discredit and invalidate <laughs> Zionism. And you you know, it wouldn't have gone anywhere, but of course it did. And it sort of found a great platform in post-colonial thought and then into, you know, so postmodern thought. So it became sort of a permanent feature of the sort of the de- de- decolonizing left. You know, and by the way, I make a distinction. I don't know if you all agree with me. I make a distinction between sort of the extreme decolonizing left and sort of the DEI left. Mm-hmm. I think the DEI left is trying to reconcile itself to the capitalist system and is trying right. to sort of reshuffle the deck. And the decolonizers are ideological crazies. Mm-hmm. Um, my favorite tweet since October 7th is that decolonization is, is uh, ethnic cleansing, but woke. Um, coming from Wilford Wiley um and i i actually quoted you in a, you. a quillette article mm-hmm. that i wrote about it but i think that um that that they've taken the soviet form and they put it on a on a platform in in postmodernism so the, because of the of of the soviet ideological scourge we now are stuck with this idea that zionism is central to the decolonization project
1: but real quick you said you make a
3: distinction between them but you didn't say between them and whom else who else? You oh, write? and the decolonizing left are the people who want to tear down our society, right? And they're the people who wrote all the books that the DEI <laughs> left right, has right. sort of uh, has sort of embraced. So it's not they've been deeply influential. So the whole oppressed versus oppressor, the whole privilege ideology yeah, 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 gotcha. is 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 part of their thinking. But they've taken that and integrated it into capitalism. And right. so I think so. The so the DEI left didn't say didn't say didn't boast, you know, hand glider tote bags. They said they they were Mm -hmm. mealy-mouthed, but the decolonizing left did. They came out and justified Hamas.
0: me, actually, the, the distinction there is kind of between parasite and predator. Like, I don't like either of them. And I'm not like an alt or dissident anything. Like, I'm a mid-level leader in this society who votes for the Conservative Party. I don't like any ideas about destroying the current culture of the West, etc. But, I mean, so there's they're liberals and then they're leftists. And I think both groups you described are leftists. But to me, the DEI left is also a negative. The Ben Crumps and all these useless departments of myself studies and so on, what they essentially want to do is latch on to the capitalist system and take from it. Right. So, I mean, every time someone is shot by a cop, um, you know, Counselor Crump will propose, say, an $8 million settlement of which he gets a third. There's nothing this really adds to society, but it is survivable. Yeah, I would agree that the actual revolutionary decolonial left is worse. And a final line for me, it's also worth remembering that they mean what they're saying. I think yeah. this is especially important for people of Jewish heritage to remember, but it's true for everybody. I mean, when they say something like, we need to return this land to Native Americans, about 15% of the country, American Indian movement's old goal, they they mean that. Right. I, yes. I, don't, I don't think that the people on the actual decolonization left are kidding. And I think a lot of <laughs> DEI leftists and a lot of good faith liberals kind of convince themselves, well, they have to be. That's crazy. They would destroy the system we all depend on. Yeah, they would. They're communists. They have I another go- system. It also kind of works.
1: I want to go back to time. you, Will, this time, because I like, you know, you're, yeah. not just because you're a smart guy, but you're, you're, you can come up with these really great retorts that I love. So I, I would love to hear what you say here. And then the the other two can reply. So I have one more thing I want to say about the Palestinian kind of thing, like specifics of the region and who are the Palestinians, Um, because I may not be a scholar like you are, but I'm pretty good at math. So <clears throat> and you just alluded to the occupation piece, right? And you mentioned Native Americans. That's what made me laugh. So just simple math, I say, because they're saying this is the the, the river to the sea, David mentioned, you know, in in its kindest term, it really means genocide. But, you know, some of the pro-Palestinian people say that's not really what it means. It just means giving us our land back. So what happens to the Jews? They'll voluntarily leave. What happens if they don't? We'll kill them. But anyway, so (laughs) you just got to get them there. But the thing that's odd to me from a simple number standpoint, and I don't want to get too religious and I don't want to go way back to B.C., but just for the simple people, because you know, I'm talking to the DEI people who don't, uh, the college kids, as R.E.A. said, and they don't know. So if the Jews are occupying this land, okay, and they were there for millennia, and you know, Judaism started, yeah, roughly, let's make it low, somewhere around 2,500 years ago, probably a few, few um, centuries before that. Let's let's call it 2,500 years ago. And Islam started in the seventh century. <laughs> and 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 the Jews were in that area, and because of persecution, some moved to Europe and that kind of thing. The simple math would say, or, or a great analogy, Will, would be similar to you talked about the Native American people. It would be as if instead of the Trail of Tears, Jackson put them on boats and forced them to flee and leave the U.S. 200 years later, they came back, and now we're calling them occupiers because they left at some point. So so. I know they don't know anything, but isn't this like a simple layup that people could say, what do you mean they're occupying the land? So who was there in the third century? You know, who were who the Christians c- converting, you know, to Christianity from what? Not from Islam?
0: Yeah, I mean, without, without being, you know, patronizing toward my Jewish buddies, I mean, yeah, Jesus was a Jew. I mean, like, yes, of course, the Jews are the historic occupants of the country of Judea. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's so... <laughs> I mean, I actually would say, though, from a a serious academic perspective, the whole concept of indigeneity kind of gives me hives, like it doesn't mean anything. I actually did. uh, I took the standard political science, you know, been there for a thousand years and looked at the world today. And I'm writing an article about this, but I also put it on Twitter as kind of a joke. And it was like 09 percent of the human population can claim to be indigenous to their country. So if we're going to take this seriously, I mean, like our Bantu ancestors, the great iron using black tribes, came down from the fairly civilized people that fought the Egyptians, Maraway, and all that and just killed everyone in Africa. Like there used to be a whole bunch of Khoisan, Pygmy, et cetera, people living in Africa, the coastal, coastal Caucasians, quote unquote. None of them are there anymore. So black people are not indigenous to Africa. Normans aren't indigenous to England. You could really go on and on with this. Rome People of Italian descent aren't indigenous to Romania. So the whole idea is kind of meaningless. Right. And I mean, from almost an amoral bit pragmatic business perspective, like when you have two groups of fairly well-armed people that each occupy about half of a country, you have to figure out what you're going to do. I mean, the the actual solution of we'll kill one of them. I mean, that's not what you want to do. And the solution of one of them is going to leave is not going to happen. So a lot of this stuff seems to be using a fantastic idea, a made up idea itself. Some people have more right to land by virtue of birth than others to justify abuses of primarily Jews. I mean, it's entirely a rhetorical exercise. And again, I don't just want to target the left. We've had shows going against the hard right. But this is pretty common. I mean, it's the attempt to put this complex real-world conflict into one of these preset frames, which is, you guys might correct this a bit, but like settler colonialism or like whites versus brown people or something like that. I mean, both these groups are Semitic, West Asian, Caucasians. It doesn't make any sense. And I, I think someone's already said this, but there was never a country of Palestine. I mean... Palestine was the British protectorate of Transjordan, alternatively known as way the hell out there in the desert. They didn't treat it particularly well before that. It was the Ottoman protectorate of same, right. you know, and this this goes back, back, back through history, to I mean, you're probably talking about the Masada era when, you know, Titus and Vespasian briefly yeah. pacified all of the region's warlike inhabitants, let's say. Right. Um. So. It, there's not really an argument there, but if you're willing to accept this structure, you can put anything in this structure. Who's more brown?
1: But, but Aryeh, the reason I make that point, though, is because that argument, as weak as it is, clearly, is being used to justify, right? So so that's what's so shocking to me that people could say, well, that was bad, but, you know, look at what you've done to these indigenous
2: people. How are they indigenous? indigenous people. <laughs> when, when, I mean, when do we know? I'm sorry, go ahead no he was just no, I, was,
0: I was no i was i was laughing a bit but i mean like the the idea in a lot of these contexts does not make sense i mean you'd have to a large a very large number of the arabs in the region and i would assume almost all of the europeans and other external players came there at some point during the british or ottoman era of empire so i don't i don't know who you'd be calling indigenous on that, that's what i kind of chuckled at but i, I do yeah. want to hear artist's point
2: yeah no i I have a Do we know when indigenous studies emerged as a discipline? When did people start talking in these terms?
3: Three weeks after I, feminist I, I gotta think it no. was in the late 1960s with the rest of sort of the postmodern Arctic studies right. departments. It, was, it all started around then and it proliferated in that 10 year period, really.
0: Yeah, the, yeah, uh, I mean, the it, academy, it, that, that's exactly right. The academy at that point took on a bunch of, we'd say qualitative. I mean, they're not supported by any numerical data, basically Russian and French ideas. Postmodernism was very French at its root. And that's when you saw, you know, postcolonial studies, indigenous studies, peace studies, black studies, women's studies. And there was kind of a two part goal. Like one is the left gaining power in these massive intellectual institutions. And another goal was kind of getting in students who weren't otherwise qualified. Uh, Minority kids, feminists, dumb white legacies, so on. So, those two things combined like the promise was we can increase your student population by like 20% if you let us do this stupid shit. That's how this all got through the door, in my opinion. There are actually books about this, like The Fall of the Faculty.
1: Are you saying that uh, feminine studies and African American studies is easier than engineering and uh,
0: molecular biology? Indeed, I am, Chuck. Um, yeah, I mean, like, no, I mean, like, banter aside, I, I think that there's actually kind of a there's a pity here, because these departments became kind of Marxist warehouses for people that aren't doing all that well. Like in North Carolina, there was a big scandal because every basketball player was majoring in African studies, like including the white guys, they would all just be in there with the hoodies on, you know, learning about Benin. And they're actually there's a lot of fascinating stuff you could teach about Africa or the Middle East or about colonialism, right? There's actually a major okay. argument for colonialism from people like Bruce Gilley, but that that's not what's being taught. It's just Marxist nonsense, basically. Right. right. In my experience,
2: what, one interesting aspect of this as well is that it, those whom are those who adopt these mental frameworks that in, in, inhibit from seeing the complexity, they're also unable to see Islamism for what it is. They're completely blind. They haven't experienced. Uh, uh, they haven't come across any type of religious believer in their immediate context like this. They haven't. They don't know that these types of people exist, and they don't have the mental capacity to see them as well, which I think play, plays into part of the response that we're that we're seeing right now. And speaking well, David, of response, David, what are you going to do? What is Israel going to do? I mean, there's
1: a lack of knowledge. We talked about the people that are stupid. Uh, the media is not necessarily on the side. Public opinion is bad. And you know, whatever actions you take as we as we kind of prepare for the other shooter drop, it's going to be, you know, how it's going to be framed. I don't even say, need to say how it's going to be framed. You know, it's going to be framed. So what do you do, David? You, they're going to talk about proportionality. You wanted to talk about how that ties to wokeness. They're going to say, well, you can do something, but you have to go in physically with no bombs, find the people and kill the exact same number of people, you know, which, you know, a warped sense of proportionality. And then when you do that, you're still bad. So, you know, how is that? How's wokeness playing into that? And knowing that, what can Israel do as a response?
3: Yeah. So, look, I want to just set the record straight a little bit about this. The overwhelming majority of Americans, even by the way Democrats, continue to support Israel. The the polling about it has been very positive. Um, There is some disturbing polling that young young people are uh, are much more likely to sort of identify with Hamas and its arguments mm-hmm. even that poll that has been going around needs to be sort of interrogated a little bit um there's a there's a Harvard something poll that's going around that showed that something like 51% of Americans thought that the Hamas uh, could be justified um but when you actually look at the polling data more broadly you realize that that they probably interpreted the ten- the the question a little bit differently than other generations did mm-hmm. um so that said, you know, there is a moment Israel's given some leeway. You know, you just had, you know, the the head of state of France in Israel. So you had Biden in Israel. You, you had the uh, UK in Israel. So I do think that there's a moment that Israel has some latitude mm-hmm. here. Obviously, it gets corroded every day by what you're seeing in Gaza. And unfortunately, people don't have the mental tools to understand the difference between what Hamas did to Israelis, which was intentional, intentional murder against Israelis, to what the Israelis now need to do to root Hamas. And here I think we need some intellectual tools. I think the tools of just war theory, which has been around for hundreds of years, need to be brought to bear. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the fact, you know, you know, in war, people die. I mean, I hate to say it, people die. Um, the In the U.S. campaign to destroy ISIS, 30,000 civilians die. Um, Now, ISIS was a horrible threat to the Middle East. They were enslaving people. They were taking over land. I mean, the United States had to do what it did, but it cost 30,000 civilian lives in the process. Um, And I don't think people had that perspective. The justification for an act of war depends on what your war aim is. In previous rounds of conflict, it was just to sort of shut Hamas down so that they stopped firing rockets and you can get to a ceasefire and then you wait for the next two round two or three years later. Like, right? you know, mm-hmm. this happened in 2008. it happened in 2012, it happened in 2014, happened in 2018, and it happened in 2021. But this time was different. And the Israelis now need a different strategy. It's not just to like put Hamas back in their box for a couple of years so the Europeans can rebuild Gaza and they can, you know, take all their money. It's now to just really get Hamas out of power and uh that's going to take a lot more firepower than it did before and there's no pretty way of doing it this is what i call sort of moral aestheticism that we 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 have it's the not it's conflating what looks bad with what is bad it's mm-hmm. a and, and and so you see people dying you say israel must have done something wrong in that process and i think i think we've got to go back uh, and help educate people. Not everybody has the you know woke mind virus here. And some people are capable of seeing the world beyond just oppressed versus oppressors. I think the vast majority of people are. So I think we've got to start providing more of that perspective. I'm writing about it. I know others are writing about it as well. Are you?
2: Right, so maybe here I think um, looking uh, again into the, the larger war of ideas that's taking place. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we need to uh, also hear when David mentioned we you know we might not have the intellectual tools for thinking about collateral damage as opposed to you know purposeful murder. Um, we we don't we we need to um, also uh, be able to uh, move to the frontiers of our political thinking, extend our moral imagination. So that we can recognize this war of ideas that's taking place and actually uh, engage in it, Um, and I know that sounds fantastic at first hearing, but um, I I think that there's a rare opportunity here to do so. And uh, so, if you just bear with me for a minute, we're gonna we're gonna have to dive into a minute for the to the the thought. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So um, the 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 primal. uh, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the Islamist, this Islamist interpretation of Islam, mm-hmm. and there are, are alter, there are alternative interpretations that are being advanced by other regimes in the regions, primarily the Moroccans and the Emiratis who are trying from within the sources of Islam to advance a tolerant form of Islam. They are prominent Muslim authorities who are in in favor of it and trying to advance it as well. But when we're looking at the Islamist interpretation, um, the the uh, and we have to remember also here to see the enormity of the war the the premier uh, islamist thinker his, his name is sayyid kutub who's an egyptian who lived from 1906 to 66 the present leader of iran ali khamenei translated four of his books from arabic into persian the political islamic interpretation the political islamist interpretation of islam transcends the Sunni Shiite divide, and the Islamists from Iran to Yemen to Gaza across the region are advancing the same agenda, which is based upon this vision. Okay, What is the vision, and and then how can Israel Israel possibly, as as strange as it might sound right now, uh, uh, relate to this and react to this vision? Qutb had a very basic intuition idea and Qutb was a very sophisticated thinker and a very deep thinker. He came out of the Cairo literati in the 1930s. He was the first person to review a, a novel by Mahfoud, the publisher of a review when he was earlier in his career. Qutb uh, has a, a basic distinction between Islamic societies and what he calls Jahili societies. That's the most fundamental distinction that a true Muslim has to make. Jahili is from the word jahiliyyah, which means ignorance. There are societies which are ignorant of God, and then there are societies which are Islamic. Jahili societies uh, can be atheistic and materialistic, but they can also be societies in which there is an announced belief in monotheism. You can have a jahili society in which the leaders are Arab Muslims, they speak Arabic, they quote from the Quran. People are encouraged to pray five times a day, to go on pilgrimage, to give uh, uh, um, charity, etc., etc. In the eyes of the Islamists, it's still a Jahili society. It's still an idolatrous society. How so? Because the, the fundamental drive of the Islamists is they want the complete, pure application of the Sharia, the the Islamic law, as it comes out of the Quran into life. If you have a society, in order to have a truly Islamic society, you need to have law, politics, diplomacy, education, manners, and mores all determined by Islam. If you deviate anywhere, you are Jahili. From this perspective, you can understand why it's permissible for the Islamists to murder hundreds of thousands and millions of Muslims because they're not true Muslims. Kutub says that the darkness that has covered the earth today is more dark than the darkness that Muhammad faced in his original. Date. He flips the script entirely. What you call civilized is barbaric because there's no knowledge of God, and what uh, we call barbaric is barb- what you call barbaric is civilized. Civilization, because there is knowledge of God. He even had a book called uh, The Civilized Society of Islam. He took out the word civilized from the title called The Society of Islam because he said, I don't want to borrow Western notions of civilization. In this context, he quotes from the Quran uh, um, and uh, the verse in Surah 43, which says that he is sovereign in heaven and he is sovereign on earth. The only Islamic society is the society in which God's sovereignty is manifest on earth. Okay. So this is the fundamental intuition. And this appeals to Muslims around the world, the simplicity and the depth of it. By the way, this is important for understanding how second generation Europeans are so drawn to Islamism. Their parents don't know anything about the countries they're immigrating to. All generations of the family come from a radically different culture. There's a huge gap between the parents and the children. The Islamists fill the gap. They give the education. They give the ideology. Israel must win this war. To understand what's at stake for Israel, if Hamas remains in power in 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 Gaza, you have a very real possibility that residents of Gaza communities are not going to go back to their homes. Would you go back to live on the border of Gaza with three children? If that happens that will mean that Gaza that the Hamas has succeeded in its announced intention of uprooting Jews from their land. The amount of headwind, the amount of inspiration that this will give to Islamist groups around the region is difficult to overstate.
3: Yeah. I think people don't right, understand. that. Wait, oh, wait. David, yeah, just, one more
2: step, please. And thank you for your patience. I know this is taking a little long. Final step. So, Israel must wipe out Hamas, its military capacities and gun-bearing Hamas members. You can't, you know, maybe not 100%, but Israel must wipe out Hamas. When that happens, God willing, and Israel stands on the graves of Hamas, we can then say, and this is engaging, that those who will be able to hear this are the Islamists, and their potential followers. We must, we can say, there is a judge and there is justice, not only in heaven, but on earth. And all good people around the world will see that and will rejoice. And you know what? After that, you know, you would love to see the Israeli representative of the United Nations to show what distinguishes Israel from the Islamists after he says that there is a, a judge not only in heaven but on earth, and we see that because they're all dead, and then take a glass and invite other members of the UN General Assembly to take a glass and offer a Lahayim to life. Because that's what's different about between us and about them. Now, this the the the, the Hamas and their followers think they have opened the gates of heaven. They need to find out in the end that they have opened the gates of hell. We need to speak their language. In the West, this language will be heard rhetorically. Fine. But it will resonate. It will it will serve to weaken the self-confidence and the self-assurance of the Islamists, aside from dealing a serious material defeat. And we have to remember that this is a war. Even after this, this war is one battle and a larger war against the Islamists. David? You were going to say something?
3: Yeah, I mean, I fully I totally agree with it. I think it's hard to get our heads around it. You know, um, if you talk to somebody from Hamas or somebody with an Islamist worldview, and they, they look at what has happened in Israel. Israel left Lebanon in, I think it was 2006. Israel withdrew from Gaza in 2005. Um, Israel uh, agreed to the Oslo Accords and changed status of Palestinians. They see this. As evidence that they're winning, mm-hmm. not as, as as peace offerings, not as the chance to change the region, but as evidence that Israel's winning. So when Israel leaves Gaza, this is not an opportunity to build Singapore in between Israel and Egypt. This is an opportunity to turn up the pressure and to put forward the war. And that's very hard for people to understand. If Israel didn't fight back and Completely uproot Hamas, it would be putting its own long-term survival at stake because it would, as Arias said, it would it would create the impression that Israel can be bullied out of its home, and it would uh, it would be viewed as a tremendous Hamas victory. So all these people calling for the ceasefire, I mean, my God, uh, ceasefire! You know, don't know what they're talking about, and um, and so I, I think that's why you know. No matter what pressure, headwinds come our way what, from Israel's way, we've got to we've got to give Israel all the cover it needs to fight this war because it's not just the a war that Israel faces. Israel's on the front lines of this, but it's a war that the West is facing as well. Will, I, I see, I agree with him as well,
1: but I see two other two issues with it in the sense that one, obviously, again, we have to go back to the lack of knowledge. And the way things will be spun, so it will be difficult because to get people to understand that, like, especially in the Western world and America and you know uh, Western U- uh, Europe and things like that, like, getting them to understand that, to get them on board, right? We're already hearing you know murmurs, Davis right that the majority of people are with them, but it's not like 96%, right? There's there's a lack of uh, understanding. But the other piece is, are you made a clear point that it's not just Hamas that they it's a group of other uh, groups, Muslim nations that feel that way. So that would be like the first domino, but this, the next step will be, one, does the fight continue out, right? It's going to be hard to do that, you know, kind of like George W. Bush's, go do it everywhere kind of sense. They'll be like, okay, you get to attack Hamas, but then you stop there. So, and then does it, as David says, energize those other countries to say, okay, this has happened. So that means we need to fight harder. So uh, what are your thoughts on on that? what the reaction would be like, even if, if that happened.
0: I pretty much agree with Dave. Like, obviously there are risks. Anytime you fight a war. I mean, it's like the old joke about knife fighting. Like, you know, the upside is that you get badly hurt and the other guy dies. I mean, so it's generally something you, you want to avoid, but I mean, a weakness for the West is our lack of understanding of other cultures and our very short memory. I mean, I remember once and the memories are far longer in the middle East and Eastern Europe than they are here. But when I was in Latin America, I was invited to some kind of event, and there was a logo on the flyer, and the logo was two guys in Western armor mounted on a horse versus a guy dressed in a jaguar outfit. And there was some kind of conflict between like white and mestizo individuals going on. It was done mostly in a friendly wise. But I mean, like that's a symbol of like the Templar knights versus a symbol of like the Aztec jaguar warriors. These were groups that fought each other hundreds of years ago, and that's the sort of thing or that influenced the conquistadors who fought their hundreds of years ago. That's the sort of thing you see everywhere else in the world that we often don't have any idea about. Just a random example there. But so, I mean, I, obviously, if the Israelis were to be told by kind of a big brother figure to stop fighting, and they were to stop fighting, and they were not to effectively punish Hamas, yeah, that would be seen as weakness, uh, to some extent, correctly. The idea would be, well, we launched this attack against, you know, the enemy. We lost 4,000 young men, but that's kind of what young men are there for. And now we know we can do this again, and there's not going to be an existential price. So yeah, I think that would be a a dumb thing to do, which hopefully the Israelis can avoid. Um, You're obviously right that the pressure... So this is something that I've seen. And this, to me, is the most offensive and the most bizarre aspect of this whole thing. I mean, I'm pretty unabashedly pro-Israel, given the sides here. But a lot of people, like uh, our congresswoman uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez comes to mind, a lot of people barely responded to the initial attack. They did sort of a dismissive statement. Yes, yes, of course, it's wrong. to Kill small children. And then they waited about three days, which is like half of the American possible memory. And then they started criticizing every aspect of the Israeli response, like posting pictures of toppled buildings in Gaza City and this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think you have to understand strategically that's going to go on for the length of the war. Right. And that that has been a major reason that the USA has lost wars in the past. I mean, I, I would say that's one of the two or three main reasons we pulled out of the Vietnam conflict. So the question is, Israel is, in addition to defending itself by hopefully clearing Hamas out of Gaza, is going to have to play kind of almost a PR campaign right. where they're going to have to respond blow by blow. And I think the Israelis are on point enough to do this pretty well, but they're going to have to respond blow by blow to each Successive media criticism from, for example, the New York Times is going to be brutal to Israel. Yeah, um, yeah I, I don't They're know. They're getting why. better at it,
3: Will. They're getting better at it. You know, you can see it with the hospital. Some of us have been calling it a blood libel. Maybe that's overstatement. I don't know. <laughs> but the uh, the New York Times portrayal of Israel striking Gaza hospital, killing 500. Um, Palestinians say or something like that you know all three aspects all three claims were were false Israel didn't do it it wasn't the 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 hospital wasn't destroyed and um, 500 people weren't killed Uh, the funny the, the, the funny the astounding thing was that the initial picture showed a building that was blowing up that wasn't actually the hospital so that just yeah, tells you this but but you say no, but th- that's all going to have to be countered
0: in real time, though. And I think Israel did a very right. good job with this. It, like, did. They it, kept did. it went radical. as fast as it
3: could, because it can't yeah. be like Hamas. Hamas is going to tell a lie no matter what. Israel may occasionally lie about things. I mean, I, I don't want to pretend like Israelis have been completely above board in every wartime situation. But they're not. They like I knew immediately that it was that it was. Uh, that, that the Israelis were telling the truth because you knew that something like that was going to be found out, like that the that the CIA was going to have an assessment, that the European Union would have an assessment. There's just too much footage. It wasn't like happening in the back alley of or underground in Hamas. It was all in the open. So that we we're going to find out what happened. So as soon as I understood that, I knew that the Israelis must be telling the truth because they're going to be seeing Biden the next day and they can't lie to him and it's going to come out. But, and I think that, that that the the media just doesn't understand the reality that the Israelis are much more likely to be credible about this. And Israel, I think, gets I now. What you're they're just, yeah.
0: They're just lying. Right. Yeah. But I mean, my, my one point there, and I think we all we all have a comment here. So not not at all like busted. But my one point is just they're doing this well. They're going to have to keep doing this the entire yeah. conflict. And this is something for conservatives, military men, so on in the USA as well to to keep in mind. You're fighting two wars. There's the propaganda war. And then there's the actual conflict, I think, in one sense. I think Israel has no choice but to fight the actual conflict. There are going to be a lot of sort of ankle biters that make that more difficult. Like the basic idea that if you're hit with a causes belly, someone attacks your country, a thousand are killed. You can then fight a war with them. You know, kill up to X number more people than that, defeat their leadership. That's one of the oldest human rules. But we're going to see it challenged at every step. No, no, these people you can't attack. Or, you know, what's the idea of collective punishment? Because Israel turned the lights off like they were during a fairly friendly period. They'd been supplying electricity. So the question is, do they have to during a war? I mean, you're going to see all of that for the next year or whatever the period is. And I think Israel is prepared for that, but it, it's going to be a problem.
1: The only thing I was going to say, David, is you said they're doing better. And that's true from the media and the New York Times, although they did run it the first time. But but then on the counter of that, look at the uh, press secretary, uh, a Jewish friend of mine that we all know, I won't say the name, was talking about how Biden was doing such a great job on this. Right. He was standing with Israel, which is fine. He went there, all this other stuff. But then what did his press secretary just say yesterday when asked about Israel, responded that, yeah, but a lot of things happen to Muslims, too. Right. So this is the press secretary. So there's going to be a lot of fronts of this.
3: Yeah. Yeah, obviously. And I think there are forces in the administration, I have no doubt, that don't like what Biden's doing. Apparently (laughs) there was some mini State Department revolt or whatever. And they're waiting for the opportunity to openly say it. They They are. are, They're going to try to chip away at his support. Mm. No doubt about it. But, you know, there's going to be a lot of people who are going to be bolstering Israel as well. And, you know, look, I, I have my critiques of Joe Biden. I think he's done very well. All things considered, I'm glad he's uh, taken a firm stance. Um, mm-hmm. Is it perfect? Like would I like him to say a lot more about Iran? Yes, I would. Do I think he's misplayed Iran? Absolutely. 100 percent. Do I think that played a role here perhaps. but um, but you know uh, for, for most Israelis, even right- wing Israelis, they saw that initial speech by Joe Biden as a godsend. I mean, it was mm-hmm. to them the most important thing that anybody has done so far, including among their own leaders. So you know, let's give credit where credit is due.
1: Well, let's let Aryeh have the uh, final word here. Anything you want to add um, to close? Yeah, this yeah, yeah,
2: You're not gonna like you're not gonna like this, but oh. uh, I, I think we have to. Uh, I think we have to be clear-minded about just how bad things might get, and we're gonna really have to toughen our nerves because if with each broadcast image, you're going to have masses mobilized across the Middle East and throughout the Western world. Um, and there's a lot that can come out of those masses. The, the, uh, the, um, our friendly allies in the North Africa and the Middle East aren't gonna look kindly, they're gonna have a difficult time with that. Um, in addition, uh, we might have um, a war on any number of fronts. When Israel invades Gaza, uh, the the Hezbollah from uh, might react, and we might have a multi front war. Um, and in addition, in Israel, we have to be aware that we might be facing a five front conflict at the end of the day, might, which would be Gaza, Hezbollah on the Lebanese border, Iranian backed forces on the Syrian border, uh, unrest in the West Bank, and among the minority of Muslim extremists, most Arab Israelis uh, have gone through a process of of Israelification. Uh, there have been no signs of any violence whatsoever uh, or act uh, or, or uh, acts uh, uh, violent acts since this conflict began. But we do know that there's a hardcore of Islamists within Israel as well. We had conflict in Israeli cities not too long ago. So we have to really steel our nerves and be able to take a look at the midterm and the long term because the price of not winning and not striking a serious blow to the Islamists right now, that will make things worse. Well, I guess we have to leave it on that somber note.
1: They are Arya Tepper, Director of Publications at the American Safari Federation and the co-host of Straight Ahead, the Omni American podcast with our buddy, Greg Thomas. And David Bernstein founder of the Jewish Institute of liberal values and author of woke anti-Semitism gentlemen thank you for joining us thank you guys
0: thank you. Yeah.